So uh, I'm glad to be here, obviously. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, I guess maybe I don't introduce myself enough. I'm Matt. I'm, I'm from uh, Calvary Church in Steinbeck. Uh, I'm an elder there. I was formerly a pastor there. And I'm currently working in the marketplace, which is uh, quite an experience in itself. Uh, they, they tell you, uh, don't go overseas to be a missionary until you're being a missionary here. And, uh, and, and that's true. Because a missionary mindset when you go to work will, 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 uh, will take it up a notch when you go there. And, and you'll find all sorts of shenanigans that, that you would find on the mission field, um, including uh, a total distrust in your ability to minister to your coworkers. And uh, so that's very good. It's very, very good. And, and so currently that's what I'm doing. Um, I found that uh, making the hard decision to leave my post as a pastor opened up every possibility. And, and, and sometimes if you give a big yes in one area, the second or third or fourth yes seemed to be a lot easier. And, and so, Lord willing, we'll see what all of that brings. So, obviously, as an inquisitive church, you wonder, why are the chairs here? And so, you, you might think that, uh, that this is for some sort of calling people up. Because wouldn't that be fun? If you got called up on a Sunday morning unsuspectedly with no notice to give spur-of-the-moment answers. I'm not doing that. But wouldn't that be fun? Lord willing, you know, maybe I will, but we'll see. So for now, this is just going to be a good object lesson. But I want to start with a scripture verse before I go anywhere. And... Uh, the verse is this. I'm not going to camp here, and so I would invite you just to hear this. I'll be in Matthew 18 if you want to go to where I'll be. Uh, but the verse is this in John 10, verse 10. And I this is what I want to invite us into, and I want you to remember this when I get to some of the meat of the message. And keep this in your mind. The thief... This is Jesus talking. The thief, being Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have it exceedingly. Jesus, from time to time, made these declarations where he would sum up his ministry in a sentence. I've come to preach. I've come to heal. Right when John the Baptist says, are you actually the Christ? Jesus clears all of that up with these statements. Look what you've seen. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm saying. And in that, you'll know my mission. And so he sums it up here again, very, very thoroughly. The thief has come to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come that you would have life and have it to the fullest, abundantly. Is that our experience today? 
is that our experience this year, last month, two years from now, or ago, two years from now, who knows? Full of faith, it will be our experience. Do we have life in Christ and to the fullest? That's his mission. And so here's how Jesus works. It's really simple. If he has a mission, he's going to get it done. And you have all of heaven's support in doing that. And so we look at our own lives and we say, how am I doing? What is my experience with Christ? And is it full of joy and life? And is it full of abundant joy and life? Or is it not? We can probably take a fairly quick temperature of our own lives, the lives of ourselves, of our home, of our workplaces, of our family gatherings, maybe not family gatherings. There's just too many uncertainties with family gatherings, but you can take a temperature. How is the life of Christ permeating and expressing itself in my life, in the life of the people around me? Because the heart of Jesus is that it would be full and abundant. Who wants that today? Couple of hands. Super. That's great. I'm going to try and convince you. I can't, you know what? Nobody up here can convince you anything. It's an interaction between you and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I can't actually convince you of anything. So I'm even going to let myself off the hook on that one. I cannot convince you you want abundant life in Christ. But Jesus can use the Spirit to convince you. And when, and when the Spirit convinces you of something, it's done. Is that your experience? That's been my experience with the Holy Spirit. He tells you to go do something, even if it's hard, it's done. You spoke, I listened, now I'm doing it. That's the best life. And so even theoretically, even passively, if we don't want to put our hands up, we're made to desire a life full of joy and passion and excitement. That's in our DNA because God made us. And God's plan was always to be that source of, of unlimited joy. But I want to offer up a good explanation and a good roadmap in how to get that. Because you might be thinking to yourselves, okay, yeah, great. I want that. Maybe I don't want it enough to put my hand out, but I want that. Then you start going, but this and but that. And if these things were cleaned up, and if those people were out of my life, and if these situations didn't happen, and if my parents weren't this, then I could have it. And all of those are factors. But I want to go and blaze right through that. Because there is one obvious way today that we can posture ourselves 
With the Lord, we always have to do something. We always have to move in faith somehow. We always have to put a little bit of work in. Okay, let's not make that sound like something legalistic. Right, and yes, Jesus said, I could make these stones cry out. But God doesn't expect his children to be stones that he needs to supernaturally make cry out. That's the truth. And so we have a part to play in this. Exceeding joy, abundant life. There is a way forward to get that. And so I don't know if I've done a good job at like making you feel excited for the joy of Jesus, for the life in abundancy. But I want to talk about the way forward. And the way forward is through everyone's favorite discussion about forgiveness. All right, we get to talk about forgiveness. Who's excited? Who's with me? Come on, you guys don't even mean that. Now look, I want to show us a little diagram about how forgiveness or unforgiveness works. Okay? And so this is my heart right here. Nice heart. It's comfortable. You know, it's a good heart to sit on, right? This is me in my core. And I go along with all of my experiences. Now, this thing's pretty heavy. And I have choices to make. They're not going to get anything of this on the live stream, are they? Oh, thanks, Dwayne. You're the man. Is that on now, Daryl? They got it? Awesome. Okay. This is my heart. And I go along with myself, my body, and I have to perceive all of the experiences around me. You're kind of along for the ride in a certain way. This is how I start my life. Open, easy access, people can come to me. You know, Will can adjust my mic if he wants, right? If I got one pant leg rolled up more than the other, right? Somebody can deal with that, okay? Larry can fix the chair if it's like wobbly, right? Perfect. But then life happens. And I realize that this side of the room isn't even listening to me. They've now become unsafe to me. I've become hurt and bitter with them. They're laughing because it's true. No, come on, guys. And I decide, I would much rather that this side of the room doesn't exist anymore. It's just easier. And so now we have all of this. Blessed saints. Wonderful. But somebody's on their phone there. They're not actually, but all the kids look up. How did he know? Somebody's on their phone over there, and so I realize now this is contagious. And so I'm going to take this wall, and I'm going to move it like that. Oh, but this, they still feel unsafe, and so I'm going to Super. This is excellent. 
But here's no better. They have all of that stuff going on. You know, mostly because I'm reminded of it all the time. Just keep dwelling on these things. The not listening, the no respect. You know what? I'm going to cut you folks off as well. Just too unsafe. There's only one person there. There, here we go. Ha! Life exactly the way I want it. Nobody can hurt me. Here we go. I can still see people through the cracks. I don't want that. Make this nice and tight. There. None of the hurtful people in my life exist anymore. This is wonderful. I have life just how I want it. But it is a little tight in here. And I have only myself to talk to. And I sure would like if somebody checked in on me from time to time. I wonder why they won't come. I wonder why no one will help me. I wonder why it's only my own thoughts that I have to consider. My own thoughts aren't nearly as exciting as I thought they were. It's always the same ramble. People would just reach out to me, maybe I'd be okay. I don't know. Is any of this our experience dealing with forgiveness or unforgiveness in our hearts? The reality is, and all, I only had chairs, so it's a bit hard for this to be a good description. But every bit of bitterness in our hearts, every bit of unforgiveness, every bit of offense that we're carrying at somebody else will imprison us to the very day we die unless we deal with it. And we will die alone and bitter and resentful. Everybody loves the topic of unforgiveness. This is not life to the abundant. This is COVID in the hospital all the time, never getting out. And it's all our own doing. And this is one of the biggest deals that you're going to find. Our level of joy in our life is 100% determined by the level of forgiveness we are willing to offer and the amount of forgiveness we're willing to receive. 100%. And that's great. That's great. Because in our Christian life, we don't always have any control over how our walk goes. But we do with how we keep our hearts. Forgiveness is the way forward. Enjoy to the abundance.
100%. And it sidesteps all of the other issues that we say are stealing our joy. I want to show us that. I want to just real quick, I want to end with grace and freedom. And I want to look at a picture that just screams of grace and freedom. Before that, I want to read a bit of a passage from Matthew 18. It says this, and it's all about forgiveness. It gives us, um, first, if you're looking, it's starting in verse 15. It gives us, first, a method in how to deal with if somebody harms us, or in what to expect if we've harmed somebody else and we want them to respond in a godly fashion. There's then a wonderful picture about what forgiveness looks like. And then we're going to close with another passage. Verse 15 of chapter 18 in Matthew says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Step one. If you are offended with your brother and you have not done this first step, you're in the wrong. Because it's clear. If your brother has hurt you, go in good faith for reconciliation privately to him and discuss how he's hurt you. If you've missed this step, you're not ready and you're part of the problem. It's right there. It's right there, guys. I'm just agreeing with the red letters, man. Between you and him alone, or her, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Good. Done. That, there's sin in the church, I get that, there's sin in the world, and sometimes giving an offense to somebody maybe you work with, or a family member that doesn't believe, you may have to go to step two. In the church, guys, we should never have to go past the first step. Smile again. We should never have to go past the first step. Okay? If your brother or sister has offended you, go and talk to them privately, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they will be repentant, and you will cry and hug, and it will be good, and you will be better than it was before. That's how it works. When forgiveness is issued, when honest conversations happen, you become more bound together. If you don't believe me, try it. Parents, you'll notice this with your children. If they have been in the wrong and you discipline them in a godly way, once all the emotions are cleared out and there's humility, you and your children will be in a better spot than you were before. It will almost be like they appreciated your discipline because deep down they did. And that's how it goes. It should be, that's it. Go in humility with love in your heart to the person who has hurt you 
And God's going to work on your character, and he's going to work on their character, and he's going to bring you closer together, and you will have a testimony to share, and you'll be stronger for the next time. That's, that's Christian conflict. But it doesn't always work that way. We may have noticed. And so he gives further instruction. But if he, if he or she does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, also full of love and reconciliation in their hearts, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The beauty of this is it now prevents the accuser of the offense of being in the wrong with a charge that isn't correct, or maybe is too full of emotion and the two or three might backfire on the person uh, who brought them, and they might say, you know what, actually, uh, what the, this person has done is not maybe what you're making it sound out to be, and, and I believe they've, they've repented honestly, and, and I think that this is done. That's something that can happen, and so if we bring people with us, the truth can be uh, more easily revealed and agreed on. It's also meant to give the person who maybe is in the wrong another chance to repent or another chance to show that a repentance is not in their heart. Make sense? If you haven't done first step one or step two, again, you're, you're, you're part of the problem. And, and we all haven't done this. And, and before I keep saying, if you haven't done this, I, I just want to let you guys know, our church went through a, a split-worthy thing because some of our leaders didn't follow these things. As part of the leadership, that was also my sin to bear and to repent of. And so we all have an opportunity to not do the right steps and to create just disaster upon disaster. So this is for everyone. Two or three witnesses, if he or she refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. How that goes down, uh, tread carefully. I, I don't wanna get too stuck on some of these things. So now it becomes a church-wide issue. That, might, that may just mean church leaders. It may just mean um, something like that. But if he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which would in short mean be out of fellowship with them. Now let's hold that lightly. Let's hold that lightly. And I, I, I want to tell you why in verse 21 but I'm going to finish this passage. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so in short, I believe what Jesus is saying is, Forgiveness or unforgiveness 
discipline should all be taken very seriously as something that transcends our physical surroundings. It's the same deal of if you want to elevate somebody into an elder position here at your church. The Bible says, be very slow to the laying on of hands. Because laying on of hands is just a physical act. Kind of. Right? It's not some like secret handshake where I've laid my hand on you and now you get to be this leader of the church. God is saying it is a spiritual exercise with spiritual consequences when you lay your hand on somebody else. And it should be done in full faith that God is working in that situation. That's why when you pray with somebody and and you really want to say, you know what, I'm with you and I believe God is in this, you're going to put your hand on them for healing, for growth, for confession. It's a spiritual exercise physically laid out with the faith that God is working in that situation. And God is saying, how you choose to forgive or not is more than just a physical act. It's being felt in heaven. Meaning, it's a pretty big deal. And so, Jesus goes into a parable. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter, bold Peter, uh, you know, sitting at the front of the class, Peter, uh, was, was trying to exaggerate to show um, maybe how gracious he was, but also trying to get a good feeler out. Because tradition was three times. You had to forgive somebody three times at that time. And so Peter's going, twice plus one more? That's going to be a good answer. So seven times? And of course, with Jesus, it always backfires. Because he's amazing. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, it's said in other passages. And again, you don't have to dig too far into this, though the number is inconsequential. We probably would know this from Sunday school. We have to forgive how many times? Every time. Every single time we have to forgive. Now that comes with consequences. It doesn't always mean you have to take an abusive person back or be in a toxic relationship or work under a boss that uh, is, is, is a tyrannical leader. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean in your heart, you need to forgive them every time. And that might mean leaving that person or not working for that company, or even leaving that friendship. But it doesn't mean leaving that thing with forgiveness in your hearts. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I'm going to tell you how much 10,000 talents is in a minute. 
It's a lot. It's like a lot of a lot. It's an unpayable amount. Unpayable. And since he could not pay, because it's unpayable, how, I mean, how he even got a 10,000 talent debt is, I don't know, horse racing, maybe some sort of like dice game in a speakeasy, I don't know. But how do you get a 10,000 talent debt? Like he would have double enough and like forever. He just could not cut his losses. This unpayable amount. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, which was customary, with his wife and his children and all that he had and payments to be made. So he would sell this person and his family and the money he would get by selling them in slaves would, would somehow make back what he had lost. And it wouldn't because it's unpayable amount. But So his servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Realistically, rising him back and his family from the dead. Right? If you have an unpayable debt, you're dead. Your life ceases to have any meaning besides the debt that you owe. When there's something you... That's like saying you have an uncurable disease. It's kind of settled. And the master didn't say, you know what, I'm going to give you time to pay. You can keep being my servant. I'll give you my, your wages and, and we'll just work out some sort of a payment plan. He forgave the unforgivable debt, an unpayable debt. He forgave it. He canceled it. He rose this man and his loved ones back from the dead. Big deal. But when the same servant went out, he found that one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a very small amount of money, and seizing him began to choke him saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sounds familiar. Sounds like almost the same story. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, good on them. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's a fair question. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. The, 
The first servant owed $7 billion. Because one talent is approximately 20 years worth of denarii. Think about that. The servant would have had to pay 20 years full, keeping nothing for himself, to pay off one talent. The only problem, like good, you paid off one talent. Now I just need 9,999 9, more 20 year increments. It would be good. The person who owed 100 denarii owed the, this other guy about $11,000. Quarter year's wages. 30 years' wages. 11,000 bucks. And he wasn't willing to forgive it. There's some really good lessons here at play. First of all, in a parable, Jesus always wants us to find ourselves in the parable. Who is the king in this story? Would be God. God, it's capital K, king. I'm not sure if it says. Uh, no, the king is not capitalized, but it could be capitalized. Master could be capitalized because Jesus is talking about his father. The first servant who owed an unpayable amount would be you and I, the, the hearer. The hearer whose life was given back to them through humble pleading. The secondary person would be the people around us who we now have to forgive. And there's a couple of things here why it makes forgiveness difficult. One is this. I don't think we embrace what we've all been forgiven for. I'm not sure we've felt the weight. Maybe, I know this in my life. And especially if you've become a believer for a while, forgiveness becomes kind of this understanding between you and the Lord. I looked at that. I said that. I didn't do that. My bad. Right? We have a bit of a my bad relationship with our sin because we don't want to live in guilt and condemnation. We, we, we're free. We're, we're made new. We don't want any of that stuff. But the danger in that is we no longer feel the weight of our sin. But until we feel the weight of how we have disobeyed the Lord, we cannot feel the freedom that comes through his forgiveness. And then forgiveness loses the beauty. It loses it. You can't start enjoying what a regular walk feels like, how light it feels, until you've spent miles carrying a heavy backpack with you. 
You just can't. Let's not lose sight of every day the offenses that we need to bring to the Lord and the weight of how that harms him and harms our relationship with him. Because if we do that, we lose the joy of his forgiveness. The other thing is, is the balances are wrong in how we see our relationships with other people. God has forgiven us of little, 11,000, but my neighbor has offended me for 7 billion. And our numbers are off. Right here, Jesus is saying, the offense of the people around you is not even in the same conversation of what I've forgiven you of. I didn't allow you to work it off. I didn't want you to do, you know, a bunch of purgatory work or any of that or whipping yourself. You don't have to do any of that for your forgiveness. Humbly come before me admitting your debt and I'm going to wipe it clean. That's all he expects. But then our response needs to be seeing the little tiny thing that others owe us instead of the giant weight that we don't know how we can get past. We have God-given emotions that make these things very difficult because the $11,000 offenses really hurt. They feel like we can't get over them. They feel like they're impassable. That's what makes this so difficult. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all of his debt. I mean, there's eternity. So also my heavenly father will do to you, every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother at least on the outside. At least give a brave face when you forgive them. From the heart, that's, that's the challenge. From the heart. So we have to forgive our neighbor every time and, and in the very depths of our being. And God's always gonna know the heart. Now, this is heavy and Maybe you like sermons about forgiveness and unforgiveness, and this isn't heavy. I don't want to speak for you, but, but forgiveness is not an easy topic. And again, because the wounds are so painful. But I don't want us just to sit on this and go, yeah, you know what? God's actually not going to forgive us if I don't forgive my brother. And yeah, fair, I've been saying that people have been $7 billion hurting me and not the $11,000 hurting me, okay, great, and I have to do it from my heart and not just on the outside, yes, 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 okay, this is really hard, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home burdened, I'm gonna go home and, and really feel bad about this. There's a component of forgiveness that is heavy, but I wanna invite us into life abundantly. 
and it's found in Luke chapter 7. And it is one of the one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible because it speaks of this very clearly. Let's look ahead about why forgiveness is so advantageous for us to do. Because now I want to tell us forgiveness is in your best interest. It's the smart play. In some ways, it's the selfish play. We may think that living in unforgiveness is the most selfish thing we can do. We're not going to let them off the hook. I'm going to stay bitter. But we end up in a cavern that we can never get out. Choosing to always forgive, always is the most self, sounds so bad, but it's, it's one of the most loving things you can do to your soul. It is in our very best interest to always forgive, always, and to never hold offenses, because freedom is on the other side. Joy is on the other side. Destroying all fear of man is on the other side. Who wants to stop fearing the people around you? Who wants to stop feeling dead in worship? Who wants to stop being burdened by people? Who wants to start loving and serving and glorifying the Lord like nobody else is with you? unforgiveness it's being unoffendable it's always keeping short accounts one of the Pharisees asked Jesus him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisees home and reclined at the table and behold a woman of the city a prostitute who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisees house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment this may not sound like a good time for you this may not sound like a free like the very thought of barging into a person's house that doesn't want us there. A Pharisee does not want a woman of the city in their house, ever. Nor does most of the guests. The very idea of having all that guilt, knowing what she's done, but going into the house anyway, taking a very expensive ointment, probably bought with earnings that were unredeemable and pouring it all over Jesus, who she doesn't know. That, that probably sounds like someone's horror show. That's like the last thing that would make me feel free. But, but where is the apprehension in this person 
Where is the self-awareness that should keep her nicely in check, always crossing her arms, always looking right, never looking undignified? It's not there. She's as free as free can be, following every heart cry. It's, it's so wonderful. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this person were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, and she is a sinner. And of course Jesus, you know, slams him, but Simon, I have something to say to you. Oh man. A certain money lender has two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Again, there's this. When they could not pay, he canceled both of the debt. Now, which one of them will love him more? Man. The one, I suppose, with whom he canceled the larger debt. Good. You have judged rightly. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my hair my feet, sorry, with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who would want to be in her shoes about five seconds after he said that? How do you think she would have handled the debts that she would have encountered from that day? We don't know. We don't know if she would have become a, forgiving, a forgivable person or an unforgivable person. We don't know. But we can at least put ourselves in that same passage. How would you, having fallen on the Lord for mercy, knowing that you are life and death in his hands, completely foregoing every bit of self-awareness in the process, not caring about forgiveness or how you look or how you're perceived by the people around you, not caring about what they think about you, solely looking at the Lord for his redemption and finding it, knowing that you were the least forgivable person in the room, every room. How would that affect your walk every day after? Two things to close with. One, if we can get a sense, and if this is the only heavy thing you get from this, that God would grace you with an understanding of the sins that you've been forgiven of, that you could properly see the sins of the people around you and how small they are, often how innocent they are, how understandable how misunderstandable they are. 
often a person sins against you only in your own head. In my head, people sin against me all the time. And then we, you know, five minutes later I realize, okay, yeah, I need to back up a little bit on that. If we get a sense of all that we've been forgiven of, we can see those things properly. Jesus says, get the speck or the bit of sawdust out of your own eye in Matthew 7. Again, he's showing the differentiation in weights. Get the speck that may not even blur your vision, but does for the illustration, out of your own eye, and then you can properly see the plank in your own. Yeah, so you know what I mean. We have a plank, they have a speck, all right? Again, big, small, 7 billion, 11,000, payable, unpayable. But go for the freedom. I know that people in Manitoba have a tremendous fear of man. It's just the way we work. It's just the way America works. It's just the way Canada works. But I know Manitoba. I'm a Manitoban. I'm a rural Manitoban. There's a lot of fear of man. There's a lot of wanting to look a proper way. Wouldn't you like to be free of that? Would that not count towards an abundant experience of following Jesus? Because I have Jesus, because he's healed my sins, I no longer care what other people think of me. That sounds ridiculous. Probably to like 95% of the room. That's a ridiculous thought. I might love Jesus so much. I might sense his forgiveness so much. I might crave his approval so much to the detriment of everybody else's. If I follow Jesus and I don't get the promotion, I'm ahead. Because that wouldn't have been a very good promotion for me anyway. If my bosses continuously think that I'm not their very best employee because I'm following Jesus while I work, it's awesome. I don't even care because I'm, I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. It's in every scenario. It's in worship. It's in worship. It plays out in worship. When I'm going to be careful with this because we don't, not everybody is an exuberant worshiper. Okay, that's fair. That's fair, okay? Not, we, everyone can be Pentecostals in their heart. Are you guys like Pentecostal, Larry? Would you consider yourself Pentecostal? Okay. Salt and light. I'm just going by salt and light, okay? But, but exuberance in worship, freedom in worship is going to look different for everybody. That's fair, okay? It doesn't have to be you must dance in the aisles, and then we will know that you have worship in your heart. And you're not abiding by fear of man. That's the only way. That's not fair. That's, that's not fair, okay? But you can still gauge, do I feel resistance when I worship, or do I feel free? 
Do I feel like I am the biggest person in the room and that everybody can see me, or do I not care? These are good questions to ask yourself. This is an, that, in that worship setting is a very, it's a micro environment of like the big picture of how our fear of man are doing and our love of Jesus is doing and where they are in balance by how restricted we feel. And so I, I, I would invite you even, there's lots of Sundays that you can keep thinking about this. When I am in worship, and I'm not commenting on anything that has happened or anything that is happening here in worship. I'm simply saying we get a, a good picture of how we're doing with are we worried about people or do we not care because we're so in love with Jesus, about his forgiveness, his love, his acceptance. And that's the thing we're chasing after. How we worship shows us how we're seeing it every single time. And that's okay. And Jesus is okay with that. But he wants to be able to have a conversation with you about it. Sometimes the conversation takes a long time. Jesus is always playing the long game with us. Always. Always. But the game needs to keep moving. More than that, I want to see us free, really free, as free as, as free as the woman been redeemed from the most sinful life a person could live, in, especially in that time. That was, that, you're done. You don't have a future. You don't have a plan B. And Jesus, in one movement, gave her all of that back. He forgave everything in front of other people. And she thanked him in her honest gratitude. And that is what an abundant, joyful life looks like. It's not being happy in every situation. Some situations aren't happy. It's always knowing that the thing that you've been redeemed from is worth influencing every aspect of your life for the good. An agreement of, of this in our heart will solve so many of our hardships. I promise you that. The Bible promises you that. And Jesus is completely up for the 